For those of us who are Christ followers, who gather together in these faith communities on Sundays, we are now beginning the most significant and impactful week of the calendar year. Yes, it's even bigger than, Christ, than Christmas if you call yourself a Christ follower. Uh, some of you say, well, I don't know about maybe Christmas. Well, we have other reasons to celebrate Christmas, but this is a unique Christian holiday, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And if, if you wonder if the final week of Jesus' life and ministry is important, I want to remind you that in the four Gospels, these are four biographical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In those four Gospels, fully one-third of all the writings have to do with just the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus lived 33 years. Jesus did a lot of ministry. John wrote in his gospel, hey, if you, and it was hyperbole writing, but he said, if you wanted to write down all the things that Jesus did, all the miracles he did, all the things he said, there wouldn't be enough libraries in the world to contain the books that would be written. So to think that one third of all the gospel writings would focus just on this last week of Jesus' life certainly suggests that this is significant just by volume. What happened here in Jerusalem between Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday is critically important for us to understand, to embrace, and to deepen our Christian faith. We just heard uh, Luke and Gabe read to you from those three passages of scriptures, and I want to focus on the, the last one, the one where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in Matthew 26. It's also in Mark's gospel, chapter 14. In fact, we're going to be focusing on Mark's gospel this morning. I want to focus on that particular time where Jesus is in the garden, that specific hour or two when Jesus was in prayer on his face before the Father in the garden on that night of Passover. On a hill overlooking Jerusalem, above the creek of the Cadron Valley, there's a grove of ancient olive trees. Scholars say that there are actually six or eight olive trees in there today that date back to the time of Jesus. So take that, Redwoods. <laughs> that part of the mount was called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is an Aramaic word. It means oil press. Gethsemane was that place in the olive grove where there were these great big stones, and it was a place of crushing where the olives were pressed down by this tremendous weight until the olive oil was released and ran out. Jesus finally arrived at that place, Gethsemane, that grove of olive trees, on the night of Passover. It was cold that night. We know that because Peter later on went to the high priest's courtyard and they, were, they had started a fire to keep warm. We know that there was a full moon that night because that's how it is uh, figured out on the Jewish calendar. The night of Passover always takes place on a full moon. So this Thursday night will be a full moon, just so you know. Um, it, it, at, at earlier times in Jesus' public ministry, Jesus had great crowds of people following him. Wherever he did miracles, wherever he fed large crowds of people miraculously. You remember how Jesus asked uh, if there was any but one that had any food when he said, you give him something to eat. And somebody says, we don't have any food. Well, does anybody have anything? And a little boy came up with his lunch and he had five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus took that and, 
and gave thanks to God and miraculously multiplied and fed maybe up to 20,000 people in that crowd at one sitting. So he had large crowds of people following him. In fact, that time when they were all fed and they said, hey, here's our meal ticket for life, they wanted to, to conscript him and make him king. You can read about that in John chapter 6. So Jesus had large crowds of people, but then in the last year of Jesus' ministry, Jesus began to talk seriously about what it really would mean to follow him. Jesus began to teach, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will find it. How many of you today have found that to be true? When you give up your life for Jesus' sake, you really find what life is all about. Amen. Anyone in Israel in the first century, when they heard those words, if anyone would, would want to follow and come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me, Anyone in that culture would know that he was saying by picking up your cross, he was referring to dying and dying a horrible death by execution. And as you can well imagine, those words turned off a lot of people. They say in the Christian faith, they say it's easy to get a crowd, but it's hard to make disciples. Specifically because of words that Jesus said like that. And by the time Jesus sat down to eat the Passover meal, he was down to 12 men. And even during that meal, one of them slipped out. So now he's down to 11 men. And as Jesus walked up that hill from wherever they ate the Passover meal, down through the Kidron Valley, up on the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was down to 11 men and they went there to pray. It says in Mark's gospel, it says, they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. Remember, it means oil press. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. I want to show you a video clip starring Jim Caviezel. Jim Caviezel played the role of Jesus in a movie that came out about 15 years ago. Can you believe it's been 15 years? It's called The Passion of the Christ. And Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying Shabrini me reshet 
كاهيل لما هير مبعض ليقول هبا بخلق الزايم نفشي هذا نحي بخلق الزيتي Laithai Anastigai Lakaima Yakir Sagi Yakar Bidion Masha Laithai Anastigai Papa كلت كيهو هنك هل كاستي ايدي مني اكين لاكس فان ليهو ايدي لاكس فان It's a powerfully dramatic scene, is it not? Jesus in the garden praying, praying that he wouldn't have to go through the cross, and yet Satan was right there trying to discourage him, trying to say no one can bear the sin of all mankind, nobody could go through with it, and yet Jesus stood up and he was victorious. I want to I back up and go over in it through this passage of the Garden of Gethsemane in some detail. You can see the agony that Jesus was in. As Jesus came into the garden, the NIV says that he became deeply troubled. He was distressed and he told them, he said, my soul is crushed with grief 
to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You can see that, uh, that I, as Jesus is, is uh, agonizing here, praying in the garden, I don't think that he's exaggerating. I don't think there are any theatrics here. Something was hitting Jesus hard enough that he thought he might actually be dying. He went on a little further, it says, and fell to the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, that awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. And he said, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take, please, take this cup of suffering away from me. But then you see a submission to the will of the Father. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. What was it about the cross? What, what was it about this cup of suffering that Jesus was going to have to drink? Jesus knows what is about to happen. He knows that he is going to become the suffering servant. The prophecy was there 700 years before from Isaiah. It was he who would fulfill all that the prophets said would happen to the Messiah. That's why he was there. He was sent by the Father. And he knows that his suffering would begin in just a short period of time. So why do you think? Why do you think Jesus' soul was overwhelmed and crushed with grief? Why would Jesus plead with the Father so that he would not have to drink from that cup? You see, drinking from that cup was a figure of speech. It meant to experience something fully, to, to bring it into your own being and let it go all the way down and through you, to experience the cup of suffering fully. What was it in? What was in Gethsemane's cup? What was so vile, what was so filthy, what was so horrifying in that cup that absolutely terrified Jesus, that made him ask the Father three times, pleading with him on his face not to have to drink that cup? What was in Gethsemane's cup? Well, number, number one, you can ask some questions. You can say, well, was it this or was it that? The first question I'd ask was, what was he dreading so much? Was he dreading physical death? An extremely painful death, first by scourging by the Romans and then also by crucifixion, a slow, humiliating, agonizing, painful death to die. Was it, was it the physical death of the cross? I, I don't think so. I think others had died martyrs' deaths before Jesus. I, I don't think it was physical death so much that Jesus was dreading. Number two, was it attacks by Satan? You just saw Satan in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, some of you are going to say, hey, I don't read that in the Gospels. It doesn't say Satan was there. But it does say that Satan was there with Jesus when he went out into the wilderness after his baptism. It said that Satan continually was tempting him and trying to discourage him, trying to get him off his game. Satan was influencing Peter when Jesus first announced that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be rejected by the religious leaders and they were going to turn him over to the Romans. They were going to put him to death. But on the third day he would rise and Peter said, Lord, may that never happen to you. And Jesus looked at him and he said, get behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan because Satan was, being or Satan was influencing Peter to try to discourage Jesus from going to the cross, just as Satan in the garden was trying to discourage Jesus from going to the cross. But I don't think it was just the attack by Satan alone that Jesus was dreading. He had beaten Satan already many times 
in his ministry. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, Jesus declared these words. He said, Now it is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. I don't think it was an attack by Satan. What about, what about number three? Was it the betrayal of Judas? Was it the betrayal of his good friend? Well, I do think Jesus was disappointed by Judas abandoning him and betraying him. But I don't think that would cause so much anguish that Jesus would actually fear dying right there in the garden, being so overwhelmed to the point of death. What was in that cup then? What was in Gethsemane's cup that caused so much dread that made Jesus do everything he could possibly do not to have to drink from that cup? Number one, I think it was the pollution of sin. I think it was the vile, the evil, the ugliness of all the sin. You see, Jesus came as the spotless lamb of God. Jesus had seen sin in other people, but he had never experienced sin himself. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 in the New Testament, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. Jesus never had experienced sin before. I think there was a dread of, of having to experience the pollution of sin. Because according to God's plan, in order for Jesus to redeem us, he had to bear all our sins. My sins and your sins were in that cup. Every vile thought, every evil deed, every filthy thing we've ever said or done, and multiply that sin of you and me by all the people in the world who have ever lived, all the past generations, the present generation, any future generations, all of the collective sin of humanity. You can put rape in that cup. You can put murder in that cup. You can put child abuse. You can put the gas ovens of Hitler. You can put all the blasphemy and the rebellion that has ever occurred against God. Every time a human being shook his fist up to God and said, you won't rule over me. You're not going to tell me what to do. Paul says in this second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5, he said, God made him who knew no sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned, but he was made sin for us. Jesus knew how ugly sin was. Jesus saw how sin turned God's angels back before human beings were even created. Jesus saw the rebellion of the angels in heaven and how they joined Lucifer, who became Satan. He saw how the angels turned into demons by their sin. He saw how sin turned men and women created in the image of God into ugly, vile beasts. Jesus knew that if he drank that cup, he too would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus, who was holy and righteous and the complete antithesis of sin, Jesus would become sin. And he dreaded that. So yes, it was the pollution of sin that Jesus absolutely dreaded. But it wasn't just the pollution of sin. It was also the punishment of sin. 
Because on one man, the Lamb of God, Jesus, the God-man Jesus, he would have to bear it all. And as he bore our sins on the cross, God the Father would treat Jesus as if he had committed all the sins of all the people. That's why Paul could declare in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 that God did not spare his own son, but he gave, us, he gave him up for us all. So in becoming our sin bearer for all time, Jesus knew that he would have to feel the separation that he'd never experienced before in all eternity. He would have to feel the separation from holy God the Father. Because in God's holiness, in God's absolute moral purity, God the Father knew that sin would have to be punished. He declared it. God will not overlook sin. And so when Jesus became our sin bearer, when Jesus bore our sins for us and became sin, God would have to turn his back on sin. And for those moments, he would turn his back on his own son. That explains why Jesus, suffering on the cross as darkness fell across the land, that Good Friday, Jesus felt for the first time that separation from God. And he said, he cried out and he said, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? On the cross, all the sins of the world were distilled. All the thousands of years of mankind's sin were compressed into one man, into Jesus on one day. And so the price Jesus paid on that bloodstained cross for us was even worse than if somebody was suffering in hell because if a person is suffering separation by God for eternity in hell, that person is only paying the punishment for their own sin. Jesus was paying the full horrible price for us all. So it's no wonder that Jesus didn't want to drink from the cup of suffering. He didn't, he, he wanted to do everything he could to avoid it. He fell on his face in that grove of trees. His physical body was crushed at what he knew was coming. Luke's gospel account gives us two more details of what happened in the garden. Luke says that an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. Maybe the angel feared that Jesus would physically die there in the garden. And so the angel came and strengthened him. And then it says, uh, in additionally, that the angel came and, and ministered to him. Three times Jesus asked the Father. And it even says that Jesus' anguish was so bad that as he fell on the ground and as he was praying, he said he was sweating. He was sweating in that garden and he was sweating as great drops of blood that say physically, doctors say, can only happen to a human being who is under such extreme physical anguish that the blood capillaries near the skin, they break and they mix in with the sweat and they come out and it looks like somebody is sweating blood. That's why an angel had to come and strengthen him. Three times Jesus asked the Father to let that dreaded cup pass. Jesus' holy, Jesus holy humanity was wrestling with his divine love. And three times... The only answer that Jesus got from heaven was silence. Yeah, Jesus knows what it feels like to get an answer to prayer of silence. Apparently, the answer from heaven was, there is no other way. That if Jesus really loved mankind that much, if Jesus really wanted to save them 
from the consequences of sin and death, then Jesus would have to choose to drink that cup and he would have to drink it to the dregs. In John's gospel, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Everybody else has to die for their sins because it says the wages of sin is death. But if somebody has never sinned, then he never had to die. And that's why Jesus could say, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus said, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. For every other human being, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus didn't have to die, so he would have to voluntarily lay down his life for us. The question is in the Garden of Gethsemane, would he do it? Would he go through with it? Ultimately, for our sakes and for his glory, the answer is yes. Jesus bowed his will to the Father because he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's how through faith and, just, and trust in Jesus, that's how we can be redeemed. Because Jesus would drink that hideous cup of suffering for us. Jesus would pay that price for our sins once and for all. That's how we can enter into a right relationship with God. Because of what Jesus did. You see, the cross, as terrible, as horrible as it was, as the, one, as the darkest point in human history, the cross was God's choice. In God's wisdom and plan, God decided that the cross was his way to accomplish two great things at the same time. You see, the cross would accomplish at least two great things at one time. First of all, number one, sin would be punished. Jesus became sin for us. And number two, the sinner, you and I, the sinner would be forgiven. Sin would be punished and the sinner would be forgiven. And so I submit to you this. Gethsemane was the place where the victory was won. Yes, the cross paid for our sins. The victory was paid for at Calvary. But the ultimate victory of whether Jesus would go through with it whether he would say yes and submit his will to the will of the Father, and yes, knowing how dreadful that cup of suffering was to drink, Jesus would say, I'm going through it anyway because of his love for us. Christ died for us. The victory was won in Gethsemane. The victory was paid for at Calvary. And that's why we say this term. We say our sins put Jesus on the cross, but only his love for us kept him there. I'm going to ask Hannah, I'm going to ask the worship team, I don't know where they are, if they're around, but if you are in the back somewhere, probably saying it's too early for this, but it's okay. I'm going to ask Hannah and the worship team to come up at this time and, and get ready for a closing song. I want to remind you of a few hours later than the Garden of Gethsemane. This is now in the, in the late afternoon on Good Friday, on what we call Good Friday. Not a good day for Jesus, but certainly the best day for you and me. There's a snippet in Mark's gospel in which at least one member of the execution squad noticed something unique about Jesus during the hours that he was together with Jesus. This man on Jesus' execution squad, he was a Roman soldier. It says he was a centurion, so he was an officer. This man had seen Jesus as the soldiers were scourging him, as he was 
walking to the cross and stumbling as he was being nailed and lifted up on that cross suspended between heaven and earth, that Roman soldier heard Jesus say repeatedly, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This soldier was even asking for forgiveness, not just for the soldiers, but for the Jewish leaders who were standing there mocking him. He sees Jesus nailed to that cross. He sees him lifted up. He watches Jesus take care of his own mother. He sees Jesus declare to another criminal on one side of him who asked for forgiveness, who asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. And he said, today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. This centurion heard that. Finally, he heard Jesus utter triumphantly right before he died on the cross. He said, it is finished. It is all accomplished. The salvation plan of God has been fulfilled. And then he sees Jesus die. He sees the love that Jesus poured out till the bitter end of his life. And so that is how the Roman soldier would exclaim, seeing Jesus die. He said, surely this was the Son of God. Before all those events on Good Friday happened, we see Jesus wrestling with God, wrestling with you and me, agonizing to the point of death on Thursday night in the garden, suffering for you and me, that drinking that cup of suffering, saying, yes, I will go through it, saying to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. And all I can say in response to that is, hallelujah, what a Savior. Now, here's the question for you today. Since Jesus was willing to do all that for you, are you willing to live for him? Let's pray together. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask you the question. I, I don't know what you thought of Jesus before you walked into the, this place of worship today. If you're listening online via live stream, I don't know where you were in your heart. In relation to Jesus Christ, maybe you thought he was a good man, a good teacher, a good philosopher, somebody who had an unfortunate tragedy happen to him. But I hope you understand now that this was no accident, Jesus going to the cross. This was no uh, terrible turn of history where a good man found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. This happened according to God's plan. And Jesus, agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, I have to think that he thought of you and he thought of me. And he said, was he willing to suffer that agonizing death? If that's what it took for you and I to be reconciled to God, if that's what it took for him to be able to say today, one day to you and me, you will be with me in paradise because I go and prepare a place for you and someday I'm coming back for you. If that's how you understand now who Jesus is, is he not worth every bit of faith that you can muster? Is he not worth your loyalty and your trust and to make a decision to follow him for the rest of your life, Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of everything you can give him. If today is the day for you to believe in Jesus, to put your trust in him for the first time, if today may be the day when you found yourself straying away from God, like, like was 
said there in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. If there was a time earlier when you saw yourself or you were closer to God and you followed Jesus better than you have lately, if you find yourself strained or drifting or getting further away from God and today is the day that you want to come back, then today can be the day for you as well. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, Lord, you are worthy. You are the Savior who gave your life for us. You were willing to drink that cup of suffering for us. You determined if that's the only way it could be done, then it didn't matter. Your own life was not such a value to you that you held it in for yourself. Lord, you poured it out to the end. And Lord, that, that breaks our hearts. Lord, we love you and we believe in you and we want to follow you. And we ask you, Father, forgive us of all of our sins. Cleanse our hearts. Lord, put us on the right path. Help us to be loyal followers of Jesus from this day forward until the day we breathe our last, until the day we come before you. And we hope you would say to us, well done good and faithful servant. You lived a life of faith. You turned back to me in these moments and you followed me from now on. Lord, that's what we declare. That is our decision to follow you. And we pray that, that this holy week would be a day, would be a week where we would reflect, where we would remember, where we would fall in love with you in an even deeper way all over again. To you be all the honor and the praise and the glory because of your great sacrificial love for us. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. What a Savior. In your name we pray. Amen.